Welcome to Podcasting Stories, insights and interviews from people just like you, using podcasts to grow their business and share their message. Podcasting Stories is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Dave Spray. Welcome to the Podcasting Stories podcast. My name is David Spray, and today we're talking with Lori Barkman of Small.Big in Pittsburgh. Small.Big is a strategic advisory firm that helps owners of small to mid-sized companies maximize enterprise value, create succession plans, and identify M&A strategies. We talked about her 20-plus year career and her experiences of leading companies through successful exits as both the CEO and as an outside advisor. If you're the owner of a small to mid-sized company who is starting to think about an exit plan, I would highly recommend that you reach out to Lori. Lori also has a podcast that she started in 2019 and has released more than 60 episodes. The podcast is called Succession Stories, and she interviews both companies that have gone through a successful exit, as well as the professional advisors to those types of companies. We talked about why she launched her podcast, lessons she has learned, and things she would have done differently if she'd started today. She shared some great tips for lessons she's learned over the past year in more than 60 episodes. If you ever considered having your own podcast, this episode has a lot of great ideas, lessons, and tips for launching and maintaining a successful podcast. And even if you're not interested in having a podcast, Lori's deep insight into having a successful transition is very useful. Now, let's get to the show. Hi, Lori. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, sure. My my pleasure. So I want to talk about Small.Big and Stony Hill Advisors. But before we do, I would like to get the Genco story. If you could kind of you know, tell us how you ended up there, what prompted the sale, did you stay around post-sale, and, and any background on that company that you think would be relevant uh, for the listeners. Yeah, happy to do that. It's it's been a, a great career. I've had a, a number of experiences. The way I got to Genco was through a executive search firm. Okay. And they were looking for someone who had e-commerce experience, who had experience in more nimble organizations, who had experience with dynamic marketplaces. And it was just a great fit. I joined Genco, which was at the time the second or third largest third-party logistics company in North America. And I was hired as part of a succession plan for one of the divisions called Genco Marketplace to replace the CEO of that subsidiary who was retiring. And okay. it was quite quite an experience there. Yeah. And as you alluded to, we we were acquired, the whole company, not just my division, but the whole company was acquired by FedEx and went through the M&A process with a, you know, global 200 company and quite a quite a, a playbook that they have to not only go through the due diligence process up front, which is one of the executives, of course, that's what I was part of. And then also I participated on the integration side of it and sort of the post M&A so I got to, you know, certainly see what that's like. And it was a really, a really good experience and 
you know, just all around amazing, you know, companies coming together. That that's a great story. And it sounds like you stayed around at FedEx for about a year after the, the transaction. Was that the time horizon that was envisioned when you all did the transaction or was it longer or shorter than envisioned? I think for a transaction like that, there's always going to be, you know, transitions of how the businesses come together. It starts with back office and HR and systems and, you know, certainly people. And, and then as you start to get starts again, in, in that situation where we were bringing together our business into, into the FedEx organization, we needed to really contemplate what were some of the new business areas and then how do you consolidate and make sense of, you know, where should people go? How do you make best use of your, the assets that you have? And so for me and my business unit, they ended up, I think, making some combinations. And so for me, you know, to, to move on to other things, it was, you know, certainly a year, it was a year and a half. And, and so I was really grateful to be part of all that experience, but excited for my next opportunities. And, and so while others, you know, certainly stayed on longer than that, I think for me, it was, again, for, for my experience, really learned a lot in that period of time about the corporate structure of the corporate organization and how they, how they do integrations at large scale. Okay. And I, and I understand that, that after that transition, you did a number of other things with a private equity firm and, and you're the chief marketing officer for another organization, but I'd kind of like to just skip past that and come to the current day and talk to me about small dot big and Stony Hill advisors. What, what prompted you to, to start those two organizations? Yeah, I have about 25 years of, of corporate and startup experience in strategic growth and value creation roles in large companies and small companies. So startups and, and, you know, larger enterprises. And that's the juxtaposition in my career is being able to be going back and forth into, into those different types of organizations as well as different industries. So in creating small dot big, which is a firm that I started about 10 years ago. Even the name, the origin story, you know, what is small that big? What does it even mean? We'll just spend a second on that. Sure. It's, if you ever played billiards with anyone from Australia, they, the pool, when you play the game of pool, right? And so right. in America, we say, we say solids or stripes. Well, mm-hmm. in Australia, they say small dot or big dot. So I was playing oh. pool with someone from Australia and that's what they called it. And, and it's just stuck with me. And so what it, it, it resonates on a couple of different levels. One is around helping people see things differently and helping people see things from a new perspective. And so as a, as an advisor to business owners, that's number one in my mission is help them see things they're not seeing. The second part of that is uh, just sort of a little cute, you know, play on words with small.big.com, right? right. <laughs> so as a marketer, as a marketer, that's how that comes together. But really, this philosophy of helping people see things they're not seeing. And so, when I apply that to uh, my work with business owners, I call myself a business transition Sherpa. And so, the primary focus is working with owners to help them capture value, grow, innovate, you know, grow the value of the company. And then, when they're ready to transition, and that transition can mean a few things it can mean to transition to 
family, if it's a multi-generational business and they want to have a succession plan to family, or if they're looking for an ownership transition, they want to sell to an outside party, or they want to maybe, you know, convert to an, an employee-owned organization, like through an ESOP, for example. So I help them understand what these options are and then profit by letting it go. That's the hard part about being a founder and entrepreneur is ultimately that transition. One of the things I, I talk about with, with folks on my podcast, which is called Succession Stories, is that change happens. And whether you're going to be in front of it or you're going to be experiencing it, and uh, it's going to happen. And so as I got to spend more and more time with business owners, I got certified in the Value Builder platform, which I know you're familiar with. And it's, sure. a, it's a whole methodology around understanding what helps drive the value of your company. And so that's why I leaned in on that. I thought it was a great intellectual platform to use and from an IP back office standpoint with business owners it really resonated with me. It spoke to me as a, as a growth advisor. Yeah. But then it also spoke to me in terms of understanding the way to look at your business through the lens of an acquirer. Because ultimately, mm-hmm. th- your business is only worth what someone wants to pay for it. Sure. And I think that, that that pragmatic approach is really important. And so my partnership with Stony Hill Advisors, Stony Hill is a mergers and acquisitions firm focused on the lower middle market which is a really good fit, not only with my philosophy of how to help business owners capture value and transition with success. Well, in my partnership with Stony Hill, I can also then represent these business owners in a transaction if they are interested in, again, your third-party sale or working with them to find an ESOP solution, as, you know, as an example. Mm-hmm. But it could also be that they want to acquire a business. They want to uh, beyond go beyond organic growth. They want to do they want to do some acquisition tuck-ins, and I can work with them on that strategy. So it's really a nice combination, I think, for for small dot big, which is the pre M and A side of it, and the you know understanding the due diligence of getting ready and getting personally ready, getting the company ready, and that takes time. You know, it takes time and focus, sure. and then also with Stony Hill and being able to work with them as an M&A intermediary and knowing all the great work that they've done, helping them bring them to market, you know, to differentiate and essentially, how can I help them punch above their weight class, above their peer group, above all the other standard multiples and valuations? How can we be better than that? And how can we help them get a premium for all of their hard work? And so Mm -hmm. that's the combination of, of what I do. No, thank you for that that explanation. So is it safe to say that one of the things, it seems to me there's two things that differentiate you from other M&A firms. One is the value builder platform that you can use as a resource in that pre-M&A stage. And the second is that you've gone through a number of transactions like this so that you can honestly say you're like in the same, you've been in the shoes of your client. Is that an accurate description on a couple differentiators between you and a typical mid-market M&A firm? Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I think also the operational nature of the work that I've done for the last 25 years. So there's certainly mm-hmm. field and M&A and the, you know, the MBA background I have and call it the education side. But the practical 
is what really what you're getting at and, and saying, yeah, I understand what it's like to be running a, a, a complicated business, right? To be running a, a complex business and the emotional side of what transitions, you know, what that feels like and what it means to the employees. And I take kind of this EQ and IQ approach, right? Well, we all have tools mm-hmm. in our toolbox, but at the end of the day, you're dealing with people. And the financials, we want those to work out. So, of course, we're going to try to get you the best deal possible. But at the same time, we pay attention to everything around around that's happening. So it's, it's the communications with your teams, bringing people into the loop at the right time, working with a collaborative group of advisors that can help you in making these tough decisions because, you know, people are come out and coming out these, these complex problems with different vantage points, whether it's legal or accounting or, you know, financial wealth management decisions to make. And so I really enjoy that. I think uh, the collaboration with others to, to the benefit of the business owner, that's really the main thing. One of the things I like to say is that entrepreneurs don't start and build their companies on their own, and they really shouldn't go about selling their business or transitioning their business on their own. It's important to have like a collaborative group of advisors around you. And so that's how I see my role. I can help quarterback all of that, but also just even in being that, as I alluded earlier, I guess the business transition Sherpa kind of guiding, right. And helping sure. uh, think about these different aspects of the personal, the financial and, you know, the business side of a transition. Yeah. I love your, your kind of slogan there of, you didn't build this business alone, so why try to exit alone? I think that I think that's 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 wise advice. Now I know that, or I understand that uh, that this phase of your career, this this kind of M and A piece, is is relatively recent, like in the last year. That it sounds like you've really been focused on this. Have has that been long enough for you to have any? kind of client success stories that you could share with your audience? That's always a question that I ask people. Or if you're, if, if it's is just, just tell me. Well, it's a work in process because for the client engagements that I have, there's different phases of where they are. And so I think some of the success stories that I can share, you know, while these are newer relationships, as you pointed out, you know, there's definitely some things where they've had their aha moments and I've helped them see things differently. For example, the second generation business owner who in some sense wants to sell her company in three to five years, but she's not really sure, but she knows she wants to change her nature of her role in her company, but she's not really sure how to go about all of that. Well, for me and her, the, the, the working relationship is I serve as an executive advisor or coach, right? So she and mm-hmm. I, I ask her tough questions. I get her to think about things differently. One exercise we went through was I had her articulate her company's values. Now, like I said, she's second generation, but they were never written down. You couldn't pinpoint what they were. And at first she did the eye roll of, oh, why do I need to do this? But we did the exercise. We And we didn't just pick the words. We picked the words and the descriptions and full sentences so that if anyone reads it, they, they get a full, complete understanding of what that intent is, what it means. So, okay, so we did the exercise and she said, oh, wow, that was valuable. But what really mattered was how it got operationalized. She used it in meetings with clients for quarterly reviews. And it really resonated with the clients. And when she saw how they lit up around it, it really clicked for her how important 
and meaningful it is. And then on the other side, we talked about how she can use these values to help reinforce behaviors that are desired or not desired in the organization. So we, we oftentimes, we talk about culture, we talk about how important it is, but when you connect your culture to your values, it's a great foundation, right? So that's just one example where this is a, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint, right? For somebody mm-hmm. that's looking out two to five years. Another example is a business owner who he envisions having a transition in his company internally in some point in the future, let's say in the next five years. And he envisions a change in his role moving from day to day to more of a consultative part-time, you know, type of approach. And again, in due due time. And he he is hoping that one of his internal managers will be interested in in acquiring the business. Well, what ultimately is going to get someone to want to do that is going to be their belief and involvement in their future direction. So what better way to do that was we did strategic planning. That's a really small small company. It's uh, less than a million in revenue, but was really powerful for them in going through the strategic planning experience over a year's time is that the whole team got galvanized around their future direction. And while they thought it will take three years to hit their stride on their revenue objectives, they're hitting that stride way sooner than they thought. And we're putting some new processes in place to help them scale. And that is super gratifying because you get to see the impact that a team can have. You don't just talk about it, you do it and you hold yourselves accountable to it. And so that's another great win, I think, so far. Now, is that whole story played out? No, because it's going to play out over the next, you know, two to five years. So I'll have to come back on your show and talk about it from a uh, from a retrospective. But I think absolutely in terms of putting things in place and getting things in motion on transition planning and succession planning and exit planning, which are all very different. You have to you have to do it in blocks of effort, and they mm-hmm. all build upon each other. And I can share some other examples too, where I have some uh, clients that are buyers and they're looking for the right opportunity for them. And I'm doing, I'm doing market searches for them. Right. And then I have some seller engagements where I'm again, trying to find those matches. So ultimately, you know, it's a portfolio of different activities that I'm working on, whether it's to have exit value and transition planning or help them sell a business, buy a business, but strategic planning, I think is a great place to start for a lot of companies who because when you think about really what is exit planning and you know what is transition planning, ultimately it's business planning. And mm-hmm. so strategic planning with the mindset of building enterprise value so that you can create more options in the future for a transition, it's really an effective process that I bring to that I bring to my clients. Yeah, I can I can understand why. And, and also you, you anticipated one of my questions about the satisfaction and enjoyment, and you talked about how gratifying it is. And I would echo that just in the work I've done with my clients through the years, when you're dealing with the owner of the business and a significant portion of their net worth is tied up in the business and you really can make a, 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 a substantial impact on their future, can't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's why I really like companies that are 
let's say under 50 million in revenue, right? Even kind of, you know, just to give you a range, let's say it's a million mm-hmm. to 50. That's a really big range. And a lot of these companies are going to be probably under 20 million. And so then maybe they've been around a generation or two, or maybe they're founder led. If they're founder led, there's uh, a different emotional element sometimes versus a, a multi-generational, you know, company. But either way, there's an identity and there's a passion that these folks have for their business. It's part of their family. <laughs> you know, on my podcast, I talk with a lot of different types of, types of entrepreneurs, as I mentioned, right? These different sort of uh, categories. But, you know, those things are always uh, a thread, uh, a theme of how they care, why they care, and ultimately how they perceive benefit in the future, whether it's their ongoing legacy and that ongoing community that they have, this identity they have in their community. Certainly there's a financial, you know, benefit that they look for, but a lot of times it's more than that, you know, especially for the multi-generational future. Even if they look to sell, they they mm-hmm. typically talk about impact, the lasting impact with their employees. And they want to mm-hmm. make sure that their people are taken care of. Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a common theme that I have seen through the years. So before we turn to the your podcast, is there anything else that you wish I'd asked you about small.big or the advisory practice? Or is there anything you just want to add before we turn to the podcast? Yeah. One of the things I really enjoy also is education. And that's one of the reasons why I started the podcast. But I also, I'm an adjunct professor at Carnegie Mellon University, I teach a, a class called the Corporate Startup Lab, and it's about corporate innovation. And so why do I bring that up? Well, I think it's important for companies that are anticipating future transition to be mindful of where they are in their life cycle. And many of us, especially because of the pandemic, have faced disruption at a greater accelerated pace than even you know maybe they had experienced previously. And so many companies, different industries are experiencing disruption. So I talk about that as a core theme as well, because if you're not addressing what your customer, where your customers are going and you're sort of looking out maybe just in the, you know, (laughs) just in the road ahead, but not necessarily the, the, the far, the far road ahead. Yeah. Difficult. (laughs) And so then as you, as you tie that in with, well, how do we create enterprise value when we're being disrupted? That's an even harder conversation Sure. because then it's almost like, is it a turnaround? And, and I want to help companies avoid that situation. But innovation too doesn't have to just be technology innovations. It can be innovations around how you go to market and what differentiates you. So I like to tie that in thematically with value creation. And I am partnered with a company that they're my, they are my tech team. And so if I'm working with a client who is maybe multi-generational company, they've got a, whether it's a manufacturing business or they've been around for a while, maybe they have a lot of data, but they're looking for a way to monetize that data. So okay. with smart technologies, frontier technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, how can we work with those clients to help them unlock that value? So that's another side of of what I do with my with my business with small dot big that I just okay. wanted to put a spotlight on. And then 
I would say the only other aspect for, you know, kind of education and what I look to do is I love um, doing workshops for CEOs. I do that nationally with Fistage as an example mm-hmm. and, you know, love to um, love to talk with business owners and just help them see things that they haven't, they haven't seen before or that they haven't thought about in a way that will help them. Okay. Well, thank you for, for adding that because that was really uh, significant. So let's now turn to the podcast. Your podcast is called Succession Stories, which is interesting because mine's called Podcasting Stories. So we both have (laughs) stories in the name. And you've been uh, pretty prolific right out of the gate. I think you're uh, a little over 50 episodes and uh, you started it a little over a year ago. Is that, are those stats accurate? Let's see. Well, today was episode 59 and... I did launch it. I'd say it was April of 2020. So at this point in our recording, yeah, it's been, it's not quite a year and a half. So yeah, it's been a pretty fast pace. I try to release a show every week. I did take a little summer break last summer, but this, this year it's been consistent every week, releasing an episode every week. And I've recorded over 70. So that means I have a bunch in the can, you know, just kind of in the queue. That's that's awesome. What were you hoping to achieve by having the podcast, and how has it compared to your expectations? The reason why I created the podcast was because I wanted to have a different kind of calling card. I wanted to be able to have conversations with different people, whether it was collaborating, what I call in a highly curated referral network, or to reach my target audience in a persona kind of way. So can people see themselves in the guests on the show? Mm -hmm. So I designed the show to be in those two buckets where the guests can be either a CEO, founder, business owner. That's my primary target of who I want like to reach as a, as a client. Mm -hmm. And then the other audience would be people that I would want to collaborate with and support business owners in their quest for a successful business transition. And so this this notion of a highly curated referral network is a little bit of a give and take where, hey, if they come on my show and I develop a relationship with them, perhaps they'll think of me and want to include me in events they're doing or you know, as a speaker, res for example, or they will a will put together an event to you know they'll invite me to something or hey we'll we'll put something together ourselves, and that has happened as as a, as a real example with webinars and other things. The pandemic didn't slow us down from networking in any way, and yeah, I think that's really the main thing is could I use it as a a, a different way to introduce who I am, what I do. And also a broader context. There's still the Mm -hmm. one-to-one, but the medium of a podcast is inherently one-to-many. And so I like to think of it in that context where you have one-to-many, one-to-few, and one-to-one. And this was my intent to try to get a one-to-many. Yeah. And you've done a great job. And I want to talk about a couple of the episodes. Has it how would you say it's matched up with your expectations? Has it been about what you were expecting it to be? Has it exceeded your expectations? Has it fallen short in some areas? What? How's it? How's the reality matched up to your vision? 
I have to rewind to my initial expectations. I mean, it was really full circle on where I was because it's funny that at the time that I was coming up with a concept for the show and thinking about how to execute, you're going to laugh. I thought I was going to do all video in person, which is such a, a crazy thought. I can't even believe I was trying to even... Because there's cost, there's time, there's trying to get people to come to the studio at exactly the same time. Just logistics are really tricky, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then, lo and behold, what happened? Well, I started recording in February of 2020, and really, we went into lockdown in March. Right. I didn't have a choice. <laughs> so, I think in a good way, you know, the the logistics worked itself out, and I ended up getting comfortable with different types of technologies. A little bit of an evolution and discovery on my end of which platform to use, and and you know I'm I'm not here to to push any one platform. I, I just ex- experimented with a couple just to try try out and the the quality, you know. And, uh, sure. Really. So I think on the logistics side, it has gotten better than what I initially fashioned. So that was good. Okay. I think on the production side. I've iterated a bunch of times. I've had really, I have really good help. I've gotten more help, but that's also, you know, I'm a team of, of, of one in many ways, but I have gotten more help with the production of the show. So for anyone listening, you're thinking, oh, I can do this myself. I would say, sure, it is possible. But for services like yours, David, I mean, it, it adds a lot of value because there is, I do put in a lot of time. And, you know, for the audience, benefit i you know i have 20 plus years of marketing experience <laughs> i have 20 you know right. digital marketing experience and i'm very comfortable in in the marketing environment so that's the other caveat is i i was coming at it from an experience base while this particular area was new to me learning how to dive into marketing tools was not new to me you know and so sure. being able to kind of look at it from that way i looked at it as a challenge and I had to learn a lot of things, but I also knew to ask really good people <laughs> for help and some right. from some friends pointed me in the right direction. I have one friend who's a podcaster and he was a super help and just a vote of confidence. Like, oh, girl, you got this. You can do this. This mm-hmm. is not, this is new. This is new, but it's not hard, but you can do it. And I have confidence in you. And that meant a lot. And then another friend of mine had also had a podcast. And I was a guest on his show. And just even going through and seeing what he was able to do and tapping into some of his initial resources was really, really helpful. So I think the logistics side, the software side has kind of met my expectations. And then it has gotten easier as I've worked out my own processes. I was Mm -hmm. spending a lot of time up front, like way too much time, and I really needed help. And so the other part of it is I do a lot of parts to the show. I, I record the show itself. Now I do audio. I also have video. So my my producer does editing on the audio and then he'll do editing on the video. I do a commercial, you know, short commercial for the show. I audio and, and then the video I record with the guest. I do social posts, email blasts, yada, yada, right? There's just a lot of things mm-hmm. that go around the show. So I think in that, in the perspective of where is it falling short, if I'm honest about it, I would say, I think the listenership is great. I think I have very loyal listeners and the the feedback that I've gotten on the show has been really, really good. So that's probably exceeded my expectations that people really do value the content 
and the educational sort of nature of the show. It's an evergreen show. You can listen a year Mm -hmm. from now and you'll still learn something. That's what I wanted it to be. But I think the feedback of, wow, Laura, you know, this is really well produced and it sounds really good and you're a good, you're a good interviewer. Like those types of compliments exceeded my expectations. So that's great. Where it is not quite meeting the mark for me is I thought the listenership, just the numbers would be larger. Mm-hmm. And I find, and but, you know, I'm okay with that. I think that's the other thing where I've had to kind of come to my own realization is that I have a niche show. And that's an right. okay thing. And I'm not going to get the same numbers as whoever else has a big show. But that's okay. I don't need to have a huge show because I'm not looking for advertisers who want, you know, and these are numbers that you might find out there too. But like some shows will say, oh, you got to have 10,000 downloads a month to get any mm-hmm. advertising. And I look at that and I go, well, okay, well, I'm nowhere near that. But I don't want advertising. So I'm okay with that. Right. And so that part of it's been a little bit different and just trying to understand what makes my show successful or not. And so ultimately, for me, success would be to get clients from the show, right? Mm-hmm. That someone heard it and then they reached out. And that is starting to happen more. I haven't gotten, a, I should say, I haven't gotten a client from the show, although that's not really true. There's somebody who had heard the show and she, she was already a friend and the show helped her understand more about what I do and how I could help. So I think mm. in that respect, it did. It did. Others have reached out. One reached out from across the country and she wanted some help. Now, while that didn't result in a client, I still consider that a win because I would not have had a relationship with her otherwise. So I think more and more it will come, but I think it's also going to come from these other referral relationships where ultimately... Mm-hmm they are reaching business owners to help me reach business owners. And so I'm extending, I'm extending my network through them. So I think bigger picture, that's probably the win. I also am intending to write a book and I'm going to be basing the book based on my show and Mm -hmm. all the learnings that I've got from the show and from my own experiences. And I think that the show will, you know, again, will lend itself to further conversations, further engagements just over time. And so that's, (laughs) <laughs> the big lesson for me and this type A person who is not normally patient is I've had to be more patient. Sure. Yeah. my you, you share a lot of characteristics with my wife and I can appreciate the challenge that you're having with the patient. So I, I get it. So I want to talk about a couple of the episodes. So, so I first learned of your podcast a few weeks ago and I've probably listened to more of your episodes in the last two weeks than I have probably any other podcast. So, because I've really have really enjoyed it, but I want to talk about your two most recent episodes that I found so fascinating and just kind of want to put a plug in for your show. So the first I'm doing these in reverse order because for some reason I listened to them backwards, but the most recent (laughs) one with Mike Silverman, the attorney, talking about exit planning versus succession planning. And so what he shared with me or what he shared on the show that I found so interesting was he talked about the different, you know, ways that you can, you can exit. And if I recall, you know, the traditional, you know, sale to a third party or, you know, sell to, you know, like a management team or do like an ESOP. And so I was expecting that he was going to say for his clients that it was, 
you know, two to 5% ESOP, you know, 5% management team, 90% external buyers. But as you know, it was the exact opposite. I want to say that like, what was it like 70 or 80% of his deals or maybe 90% were bought by the management team? Yes. And that was so fascinating. And when he laid out his rationale, it made so much sense because he pointed out that if you do an external sale, your due diligence is going to be painful, as you know, from the FedEx sale. The transaction costs are going to be significant between uh, M&A fees, attorneys, accounting fees. You've got to walk this fine line between, you know, uh, which employees do you tell that you're going through this? Which do you not? What happens if the deal falls through? And he, he, he really uh, laid all that out really with great clarity. And then he said, on the other hand, oh, and then he said, and most owners are worried about their employees being taken care of. And no matter what assurances the buyers provide, you know, the day after closing, it's their company, they can do whatever they want. So he takes that. And then he says, now let's look at selling it to your management team. Let's look at how much better this is. It's your transaction fees are less. The due diligence is way less. You have a greater confidence that the employees are going to be taken care of. So he really made a compelling case. And it kind of sounds like he almost has a niche in the, you know, and it sounds like he has a whole process around selling to the management team. Did I about summarize the conversation right? Yeah, you did a nice job with that. Definitely. And it was a surprise to me too. I think we called it kind of an inside transaction, right? That's right. That's right. People who are inside the company who know a lot about the business, presumably have had access to the financials, but not always. You're right. Sometimes the owners keep that very close to the vest. So if they have a manager or management team that wants to buy the business, you do have to treat it like a sale. It is a sale, right? It is a transaction and you have to, you'll still have accounting fees. You'll still have lawyer fees. You'll still have all of those. I think that the biggest thing I would underscore is the risk reduction in the buyers knowing more about what they're going to get. Because at the Mm -hmm. end of the day, it's about the buyer's perception of risk and mm-hmm. perception of, of, of ROI in the future with, with cash flows. So if they are not exposed to the financials, they'll certainly need that and they'll still have to go through due diligence, but it is different, you know, and it might, as you said, Mike laid out a number of reasons why that is. I, I look at it as it is still a transaction. It is a less risky one perhaps, right? Because the both sides are known to each other and there's probably less gamesmanship a lot of times when there's a transaction, especially let's say if it's a technology company that's for sale, it's not necessarily about the meetings you have directly. It's when you're not in the room that you worry about those conversations. Because honestly, that's going to be either a, are we going to build what they got right? <laughs> or are we right. going to buy them? And, right. and so you, you get uh, a different dynamic there when it's a third party versus you know, a party that's more known to you. Yeah. And it sounds like one of the other drawbacks to the inside sale is that it sounds like from Mike's perspective to really do it kind of in the textbook way is it's a longer process and the seller is going to have more more of, uh, of the transaction at risk. 
because they were going to have to have some seller financing. But it was fascinating the way he laid out. It seems like it was like a five-year process where basically, you know, the, the employees are just effectively taking the profits from the company and using that to acquire some percentage of the shares until at some point they own 100%. Yes, you can structure you can structure it that way. Yeah, and I think there is more flexibility on both sides to create a deal that where because there's already an underlying trust, right? As opposed to a financial buyer like a like a private equity firm or a strategic buyer, where you're you're inherently on the opposite sides of the table, and depending on the approach and the negotiation with the management team. You know the the owners may be very motivated to make sure that it's, it's successful, especially in these companies that are smaller, right? Because they really want to see it in their hands. They want to see it continue for the reason we talked about earlier: legacy, you know, and and fulfillment of their of their succession. It's not family, but they they're looking at it that way as if, as if it's going to continue their legacy forward, and so they really want it to work out. Yeah, and it sounds like, and then when Mike was talking about that you kind of start with with options with a a vesting schedule that I'd never heard of he was talking about a 10 year vesting schedule and I'm like that's I'm like it seems like his textbook client is like somebody who's like fifth between 50 and 55 where they really have the patience that this process may take 5 or 10 years but I just I just found that really interesting that kind of step one is you lock up, you golden handcuff the team with like a 10-year vesting schedule, and then you kind of work out the the buying of the stock over time. So anyway, I just found it really, uh, really fascinating. I'd heard a lot of attorneys talking about M&A deals, but they're usually focused on external buyers and more of kind of like the nitty gritty of the negotiations. Yes, yes, that's a really good point. That, and I think that was that was a, a difference a difference in this conversation for sure. And I think the other, you know, Mike's done a lot of transactions in his in his career. I think he said almost two hundred. So he certainly yeah. has seen it. He's seen a lot. And you know, it's, we probably should mention he's with Denton's Cohen and Grigsby, and Denton's is the largest law firm in the world. And Cohen and Grigsby is a acquisition they did here in the region, and so that's hence the name. Um, but yeah, he's a great resource. And so if anyone's listening and, and, you know, and wants to connect with him, they can, they can certainly reach out to me and I'll connect them or, or, you know, I'm sure he'd, he'd be open to talking with them directly. Yeah. Thank you for that. So I want to just, I can't believe how the time is flying by. I want to talk about one other episode and I've got a few uh, wrap up questions. So the episode I just listened to yesterday was episode 58 handling unexpected succession the Kurt J. Lesker company. And so I found this fascinating for a number of reasons. One was it was a third generation business and you interviewed the three siblings who ran it. And the one of the things that really stood out, and they even admitted this, is that the siblings, and it was two two women and one man that they pointed out that they really truly enjoyed one another's company, which seems so rare in family run businesses. It seems like the 
the drama around just the family interactions can really be uh, onerous. So talk a bit about that episode and what you thought some of the takeaways were. Yeah, it was a really special episode. I should let everyone know. Initially, it was just going to be the CEO who who is uh, Generation Kurt generation the fourth. Three. Kurt the Kurt fourth. Kurt the fourth. And he, the, the three siblings are generation three. And I had invited him onto the show and we had a pre-call. I do that as a process step with all my guests. I do a short pre-call and we plan out kind of thematically what we're going to talk about. And on that, he said, you know, I'd like to have my sisters with me. I said, that's, that's amazing. Of course, of course we can do that. And so we had a second call where we, we, the four of us were on the line and we talked about how we want to do it and, and so on. And I could see immediately. I mean, just step one was him even suggesting that, right? Just sure. tell me the spotlight is not about him, right? He mm-hmm. wanted it to be about the family. I would have loved to have his mother also, or at a separate time. Yeah. The, IT, the really, head of IT, the head of IT, the head, his mother. She's the, and she's the chair. She's the chair of the company now. And she's, She's still active in the company, but she's really taking you know steps back and in, in mm-hmm. her day to day role over time. So anyway, that was sort of the first thing was that appreciation that this was not going to be an episode where I was going to hear about a lot of conflict. I knew that right. going into it, it was going to be more cohesive as a family. I, I knew that about them going into it, and I knew this was also a tough time. While I didn't know all the personal elements that they did end up sharing on the story about why, of course, it was as hard for anyone to hear their father was going to die, but also they knew he had a very, very short time to live. With it. And I think mm-hmm. it was about it was about six months. Yeah, and I think it was so six there, is what it ended there up. There was a daughter being. who was getting married, so he was on literally in this hospital bed, and you know she they were skyping. I was just like, oh, you know, know. pulling at my heartstrings. It really uh, was emotional, and they did a great job of, you know, I, 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 this is where as a podcaster, you walk a fine line when you know there is a difficult story that's going to be told, and they're going to relive mm-hmm. it. So you, I do feel a little bit guilty sometimes when having people relive their tough stories. However, great makes for good radio. <laughs> it makes for a good episode to get those stories out. So I think that's one of the art um, of being an interviewer is enabling the guest to have space in a safe space to get mm-hmm. emotional. Right. Um, well, I thought the best them. part. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the best part, I mean, so for the listeners, the wedding of the, of the wedding of the youngest uh, child, the yeah. younger daughter, yeah. And the wedding was, I believe, a month before her dad passed yeah. and he was in the hospital and couldn't make it. But the, yeah. but I thought the most touching part of the whole story was his siblings were with him in the hospital watching the wedding on Skype, yeah. which I thought was so wonderful because that meant that they had to sacrifice, you know, being at the wedding of their niece to be there with him. And so that led me to believe that, you know, that, that his relationship with his siblings was also probably uh, pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. It was really special. I've had other episodes where there's more conflict mm-hmm. and, and then you just, you know, you know, either they tell you about the tension or you can just tell from the way they're talking that there was tension. One of my episodes he shared, he was pretty honest about the tension with his family and the brother and all that. And it was not evident here. It was more about their 
their strong familial ties spilled over into their corporate culture, which of course then had more of a family culture, you know, nature to it, which then of course, when they were talking about succession and the young Kurt the fourth being, you know, saying, Hey, we're going to accelerate your, your, your CEO grooming here (laughs) by like three, four years. And he was like, what? I'm not ready for this. I can't do this. But then when he canvassed the other executives, they all said, 100%, we're behind you. You can do this. And, you know, the young Kurt the Fourth, who at the time, I think, was in his young 30s. I think he was 32 uh, when he 32, um, took over. You know, to fill the shoes of his dad, who had this larger-than-life personality and really helped, you know, take that company to where it is today and really grow it to a global entity you know, they are 400 plus employees and it's a pretty big company really. And I said a lot, I think also that they, they emphasized this on the show in the episode two, that it wasn't about just them, right? They all, they were very quick to acknowledge it was about the executives, the executive team. Mm-hmm. And that certainly they are part of the team, but they, everybody was sort of all in on, yes, we're going to make this succession work. And it did. Yeah. It's, it's really a great story. So just, a few more quest- questions as we wrap up. What are some of the things that you enjoy most about having a podcast? And I'm not talking so much about like financial aspect and like, does it pay for itself? But just on, from a non-financial, emotional, personal, what do you enjoy? What are the things you enjoy about having a podcast? It brought out a completely different creative side of me that I didn't know I had. And, okay. you know, I've had this, marketing career, but I'm, I'm not the creative marketer typically, right? I'm not the graphic designer. I'm the business mm-hmm. marketer. And mm-hmm. so I'm more of the analytical marketer. But in this sense, I'm using other creative elements to connect with people and put the show together in a way that, that resonates. And yeah, it's not a monetization, you know, in the, in the sense of I'm not selling an episode, right? I'm, I'm, I'm engaging and I use the word curation. I curate Mm -hmm. conversations. So I find the opportunity to learn in every episode. I'm learning from my guests. Mm -hmm. And I think they learn from me too. And then obviously I want the listeners to learn. And so that's the sort of this, this really virtuous cycle as a podcaster is I am I am always looking to learn. I don't want to sit back and just say, I know everything because I don't at all. And I'm like a sponge when it comes to how these things come together in conversation. And I try to add into it and layer into like you're doing, you're doing a really great job of that. You're trying to layer into what I'm saying. And I find those to be the most interesting parts of it where it's not, it's an interview, but it's more of a conversation. And we walk away going, wow, we, we collectively made something together. And there's mm-hmm. a pride from having this asset. I look at all these shows as assets right. that have value. And I feel really proud about what I've created. Yeah, I would echo all of that and add probably the most satisfying part for me has been to provide a platform for some really interesting entrepreneurs to tell their story and have it be recorded in a way that, you know, 20 years from now when they're no longer here, it may be one of the few durable recordings of their story and them, them telling it. 
Yeah, that's you know sort of funny. You never you didn't ask me the question about inspiration, but if I if I if you did ask me and say okay, let's pretend I did. What what inspires you for the show? It's a, you're going to laugh because it's not something you'd probably guess that I would say. My inspiration for the, doing the show was a combination of StoryCorps on NPR, okay, and and the Howard Stern show. <laughs> that's quite a, that's quite a combination. <laughs> right, exactly. So if we take the best of, I think with StoryCorps, they are emotive, they're very authentic. Mm-hmm. They get to the heart of it and they preserve the conversation as you said. With Howard Stern, it's the art of doing an interview. Right. And he's a great interviewer. Like him or hate him, he is a great interviewer and I I've always appreciated how he he can bring out a very thoughtful conversation with someone. So that was, <laughs> that's my inspiration. I, I, uh, I love it. Yeah. I've had guests where like who'd sold companies you know, in their late sixties, they did the podcast and they're, and I happen to know of his two children and, and one of them has three kids of their own. And I was at a party and I'd mentioned to the kids that their dad had been on a podcast and they didn't even know it. And so later they reached out to me and they listened to it. And the one with the kids listened to it on the drive back to Texas. And, and both boys said the same thing, that most of the stories that they heard, they'd heard a hundred times, but there were a couple things they hadn't known. And then they said the grandchildren really received a whole different perspective of their grandfather. And this was all, you know, while he's still alive. So hearing that was just so, so gratifying that I, even though they, they knew their father and grandfather way more personally than I did, I was able to be a medium or a conduit to helping them understand their father and grandfather a little differently. And I find that just to be enormously uh, satisfying. I think that's important. Absolutely. So the next question is really, it may seem like an odd question, but I ask it because I've discovered it encapsulates like six other questions all at once. So the question is, do you continue or do you intend to continue to podcast? (laughs) I do. I initially was thinking I would stop at a hundred. Sounds like a good number. hundred, you Mm -hmm. know, even number. And I mentioned it to my husband and he said, why? Just keep going. You're, you're really good at this and you enjoy it. Just keep going. So I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to stop at 100. I'm at, I've recorded over 70 at this point. So I think, I think the change, however, is the nature of the guests and how I, how I decide who comes on the show. That will probably continue to evolve. Sure. Um, and so there may be other sort of, you know, changes, but the succession stories theme will still be there. The, the, the theme of transitions and, but I do want to continue to have more of a spotlight on business owners and CEOs. Mm-hmm. And so that, that to me is, is probably, you know, where the show is headed is even more, you know, sort of succession stories. Not that I don't want to have the curated, you know, referral network. I think that's still important to pepper in, but I'd like to, you know, I'd like to invite if you have listeners who are, you know, they have stories that they'd like to share about growing the business, acquiring, selling, right? Sort of all those things that go into succession. You'd know, like to invite them to reach out to me and, and talk and talk about coming on my show. 
Yeah, when we when we finish offline, I've got a few a few people that or a few individuals that come to mind that I think would be happy to to be on the show. Awesome. So so last question, and this is what I call my curveball question. I I've, I've borrowed this from I think Tim Ferriss. So if you could go back in time and give advice to your 22 or 25 year old self, what advice might you give to yourself? <laughs> I think the 22 year old self knew. Like I, I, I think I knew that I had inherently an entrepreneurial spirit, but I never had the risk profile or the big idea. Okay. And I didn't have the patience. So I think if anything, I'd probably go back to myself and say, Hey, keep thinking about it. Keep working on it. And don't, don't give up on it. Because for me to become an entrepreneur, you know, in call it the, I'm still, it's very much in my career, but I'm on this different phase of my career. And Mm -hmm. it's exciting for me because I am at that point in my career where I can focus and do these entrepreneurial things that I never let myself be able to do before. But I think everything works out for a reason and I'm okay the way it's all come together because I think it's it's at the right point in my career with all the, the, the experiences and knowledge that I've gained over the last 25 years to take it to this level. I wouldn't have been ready to do this business, you know, back then, but to allow myself back then to even explore being an entrepreneur. I was back then I was more about getting work experience for large company and, you know, that kind of thing. Sure. So that, that freedom to, you know, to, to have the what if and, and really thinking about the market, where your niche could be and what makes you happy, you know, what makes you mm-hmm. interested and where it doesn't feel like work and you, you want to kind of jump in. It took me longer to, to figure that part out. But again, I have no regrets on the career path I've taken, but that would sure. probably just be the one thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess in, in to maybe summarize it, to give yourself, to encourage yourself to be willing to explore entrepreneurial activities even or opportunities, even if, if they don't come to fruition any sooner and to, to just be more open to being an entrepreneur. Does that kind Absolutely. of summarize it? Yeah, that's a nice summary. So as we wrap up here, how can people best reach you? Do you accept LinkedIn requests, email, website? How uh, would you like people to reach out? Yeah, all the above. I'll share all of them. I love LinkedIn. So please do reach out on LinkedIn. Lori is L-A-U-R-I-E and Lori Barkman. So you should be able to find me on LinkedIn and you can send me an email, lbarkman at smalldotbig.com. And of course, that's my website, smalldotbig.com. And uh, you can reach out to schedule time with me on my site or just send me an email. I'm happy to, to, spend, uh, to spend some time with you and talk with you about your business. Well, that is great. Well, I really appreciate having you on the show. I think our listeners are going to get a lot of information, both entrepreneurs and people who are considering uh, a podcast. So thank you again for taking time out. It was really uh, a lot of fun and it's I've just really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, David. It's been great to be here with you. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. And there we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at www.podcasting.com 
stories.com. This podcast is brought to you by your podcast team. If you have ever considered having your own podcast, head over to www.yourpodcast.team to learn more about how they can help you. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.